All right, come on up then. Please welcome Kevin. <laughs> I, I find myself feeling a little like tender this morning or like emotional. And it's because this happens a lot when, I, when, when we preach, but this morning more than any other morning that I've been here, I've just seen God speaking to us in worship and in um, the greeting time and even in, in what we just did just now. Um, it's, I just feel like, like there's a, a weight lifted for me because I have something really important to, sh to share this morning, but I feel like he's already said it <laughs> a, a couple times and in a couple different ways. And so if you're the kind of person that uh, can't sit through a sermon, you've already kind of experienced it um, through w watching what, what Mario has chosen to do with his life um, and with worship this morning. So I'm, I'm just, I don't know, I, I just kind of feel tender about that because it's, it's exciting. Um, but I have... Uh, I'm super excited about this sermon because it's covering a lot of different ground. So um, we have been in this series for the last like year and a half. Where we've been looking at the Old Testament and how it relates to the New. Um, and so this is the conclusion of that series, um, which is crazy to think that I get to finish a series, which is nice. So uh, we're going to be looking at Ezra Nehemiah. Woo! We, <laughs> no one is excited because no one has read the story. But once you understand Ezra Nehemiah's story... You're going to be excited, too, because this is probably the, my favorite. Well, I say that about everything. I recently watched my, the first sermon I preached here. And back then, when I wasn't trying to be cool, I wasn't trying to, like, it wasn't anything. I just went, I want to read for you my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I was like, dang it, even back then I did that. Um, so this is a conclusion of that series. It also happens to be a perfect sermon for 2020 Vision, where we've been since January. Um, and what God has for us in the future. And it also just happens to be the perfect part three to uh, what Justine talked about two weeks ago, what Kurt talked about last week, and what Johanna is gonna talk about next week, which I already know, and it's gonna be great. Um, so I'm gonna talk in generalizations a lot today, and so just know that that means that I'm gonna be wrong because there's nuance in things that generalizations miss. So just forgive me for that and just allow me to speak in shorthand because I have a lot of ground that I want to cover um, that I feel like the Lord uh, wants us to get to. So uh, for example, um, if you were to summarize Justine's sermon two weeks ago and Kurt's sermon last week, really rough. Obviously there's more and if you got something different from their sermons then that's totally fine because this is a one-sentence summary, but essentially it boils down to uh, Justine's sermon is how do we individually do evangelism, right? And it's like, uh, sure, God will drop those moments in your lap where it's so obviously him and uh, he's kind of orchestrated the moment, but what do you do the rest of the time? And then Kurt's sermon last week was, uh, again, about a lot of things, but, but what it sort of boiled down to for me was, how do we as a community, the body of Christ, how do we do evangelism? How do we be a light in Bellevue, a city where uh, all the nations are coming to us? And uh, so this is the, sort of the next progression in that. And as I was thinking about what those things are, um, uh, and what are, we, what are we trying to accomplish with preaching? What are we trying to do? The, the main thing I think that we, we often go after is called orthodoxy, which means uh, right thinking or correct thinking. And uh, this is um, incredibly important, right? Like if you're aiming for something, but you, or if you have a goal for something, but you aim at the wrong target, you're never gonna hit it. 
And so correct thinking is vitally important. It's what good theology is. And it's what we've been, where we've been this last few weeks is fixing our theology of evangelism and our, our fixing our theology of missions. And, and if, we, if we don't think the right thoughts, then our actions aren't gonna match. Make sense? Um, so if, if I'm like trying to like throw something at the back of the room, but I believe that there's a portal right here that can get to the back of the room and I just throw it here, I'm never gonna hit the target I'm aiming for. So right thinking is vitally important. But there's a danger in that. If we just go, oh, okay, so I just need my orthodoxy and then I'm good, right? Uh, it's actually incomplete, it's actually not enough. I, uh, there, and there's so many examples that, that I could use and I, I'm going to an extreme example to prove a point. Uh, th- I'm, I'm gonna show a quote, or this is a prayer that was used in 1964 um, for those of you who are a little fuzzy about the year uh, and what happened in the 1964, this is when the Ku Klux Klan um, started making, uh, w- was very active. And um, after this prayer, um, this was at one of their gatherings. And at the conclusion of this prayer, they arranged and eventually carried out murder of three civil rights workers um, just for being different. So I want to let that heaviness sit in the room because that's, that's the actions that they chose, but this is the prayer that opened their service. In fact, it's so gross to me and so disgusting to me that originally I had this like in the, just in the normal slide, and I was like, it looks too much like how we present scripture, and I have to remove it. Like, it's just, I, ugh. So this is the prayer. O God, our heavenly God, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creatures of you, we acknowledge you as our sovereign Lord. Permit freedom and your joy to forever reign throughout our land. May we forever have the courage of our convictions that we may always stand for you and our great nation. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy and build within us that kindred spirit which will keep us unified and strong. Engender within us that wisdom kindred to honorable decisions in the godly work. By the power of your infinite spirit and the energizing virtue in it, ever keep before us our oaths and pledges of righteousness. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor you in all things. We pray in the name of Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. And so I've already kind of muddied the water by telling you what this is for. And so you already are kind of filtering it through like, okay, this is the Ku Klux Klan, so this is not okay. But if I hadn't done that, and you were just reading these words, you'd say, that's a pretty good prayer. I, I like a lot of that, right? Like, there's some orthodoxy in there. There's right, correct thinking about God. Like from the beginning, they're recognizing that God is sovereign. They're asking him uh, to, to do things for them uh, that, that seem like good things. They understand that God is infinite and he can do whatever he wants. He's asking, they're asking for blessing and they're praying in the name of Jesus. So much right thinking. Now, obviously, the Ku Klux Klan has a lot of wrong thinking. Otherwise, they wouldn't do the things they do. But there's this disconnect between their beliefs about God that seems orthodox and their, their actions, which seem very unorthodox. And so orthodoxy by itself isn't enough. There's, otherwise, there's, a, there's this disconnect. You also have to have what's called orthopraxy, correct doing. So uh, if you think the right things, but you do something different than what you, what you say you believe, we call that hypocrisy. But it's this uh, incongruence, right? 
And we have to, we have to marry the two. We have to make the two match. So it's, it's not just enough to do right thinking. You have to do right action. So Justine's sermon, Kurt's sermon, how do we do evangelism? Uh, we can say we believe in evangelism. We can say we believe in uh, reaching our city. We can say that we are to be a light to Bellevue. We can say all of those things, but what are we going to do? What's preventing me from hearing the, the words that were preached last week and the week before and, and going into action? There's so many things. But I say that I believe, but my actions don't line up with that. So this morning, we're going to look at why that is, and we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah to help us with that. And I just want to invite you, uh, as you're hearing these words, you're, uh, some people think, oh, I know exactly what my spouse needs to do. Oh, I know exactly what our church leadership needs to do. Oh, I know exactly what the next pastor needs to do. Oh, well, what are they failing in? And I just want to invite you to put those to the side for now, because there are things that you are not doing. There are things that you are not thinking. There are things that I am not correct in my orthodoxy or my orthopraxy. And so we're going to try and solve that today by looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're new here, uh, after an introduction, we like to have someone pray over the sermon. And today we have Carrie praying. Um, and so Carrie is there. Thank you, Carrie. Um, she's going to pray over the sermon and she's going to lift, lift up another church. <laughs> the yellow mic doesn't appear to be on. On. There we Yay. go. Okay. God, thank you that you brought us together this morning, Lord Jesus. God, I pray to you that, you know, in this time where all of your people are freaking out for whether it's political reasons or health reasons or just general financial reasons and things like that that we have in our day-to-day -day life, God, I just pray to you that you would give us a peace over that, Lord Jesus, and that your body, us together, would be the orthodoxy, the correct thinking, God, an example that you give us to others, Lord Jesus, so that we may all be under one thought and one hope together, God. Um, God, instead of just praying for like one single church, I pray um, over everybody who is not at church today or streaming online or taking care of their families, God, that... You know, you say we're two or more are gathered, God, but if we're gathered in spirit under one word and under what you have to tell us, God, Jesus, that is just as good, God, because we are gathered together in spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray to you that you would speak through Kevin today and give us the word that we need to hear um, about your evangelism and your plan for one another, God, and that the rest of our days and weeks would be just as, you would, just as what you would have it be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Carrie. Sorry about the, the microphone. <laughs> okay, so Ezra and Nehemiah is the, the, chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, so it's the very final thing we, we learn about the history of ancient Israel before Jesus is born. And so to understand Ezra, we have to understand the lead up. And so I just want to give a quick review of where Israel has been what we've been up to uh, since we last checked in with them. So um, in, the, in the book of Joshua, Israel comes in, uh, the nation of Israel comes into the land and, and conquers the land and they 
reside there. Um, we all, most people who've been around for a while have remembered the book of Judges. We were, uh, the Israelites were led by a group of people called Judges that were military leaders, essentially, uh, military chiefs that would deliver the people. They would follow God for a while. They would forget God. They would cry out to God. He would rise up another judge. And they slowly descend. It got worse and worse and worse until eventually they said, give us a king. We want a king. And God said, well, I thought that was me, but okay. And so uh, they, God gives them a king, and there's actually only three kings of Israel. That's it. Uh, the first king is Saul, and I'm just, again, generalizations. He was a bad king. He wasn't great. His orthodoxy was pretty sketchy most of the time, and his orthopraxy was very sketchy most of the time. Uh, so he was the first king of Israel, and I just wrote bad king for simplicity. The next king was King David. And most people, even if they don't know the Bible, or even if they don't know that it comes from the Bible, know about David. Uh, David and Goliath is, is a famous story. David was the king, and I, and I wrote here, awesome king. He was a fantastic king. He was the king that all the other kings compared themselves to and came up lacking. He created such an expectation of what a king should be like. And he... Um, propelled Israel, uh, their, their economy forward, their um, spirituality forward. He was the guy. His orthodoxy was pretty good. His orthopraxy was sometimes good. But his life ends, his, his reign ends pretty tragically because this guy, uh, who is an awesome king, also had an affair and tried to cover it up by murdering the, the woman's husband. So that's David. Uh, and then, so the, then his son is the next king, Solomon. And I put, Solomon is a pretty good king. It's hard to follow David. Like, David is such the man that when you're the next guy in, you're like, well, he was fine. And Solomon, what he gets right is he asks God for wisdom. And so God gives him wisdom uh, to, to rule and to lead. His orthodoxy is okay. He has some pretty good ideas about God. He knows God pretty well. Um, and in fact, he's responsible for a lot of, um, like um, the Proverbs, or a lot of people attribute that to Solomon. Um, the um, Ecclesiastes, some people attribute that to Solomon. Uh, so he's, he's got a lot going on, and he, but he's, he's okay. But he also marries a lot of women from other countries and lets a lot of foreign gods in. So the conclusion, uh, or before I get to the conclusion, uh, so we have Saul that's a bad king, David that's an awesome king, and Solomon's a pretty good king. What makes David an awesome king? It's pretty obvious. You already know. <laughs> uh, and most people actually already know this, and that's great. Uh, it's in 1 Samuel. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, this is before David's king, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be a ruler over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the key the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So the reason why David was such a great king, even though his orthodoxy was pretty good, his orthopraxy was eh, sometimes, he was a man after God's own heart. And none of the other kings had that. So after um, Solomon uh, uh, was ready to, to step down as king, he had a son called Rehoboam. And so he, uh, Rehoboam became the king. And then there was a guy that worked for Solomon, Jeroboam, that uh, left 
Israel, went to Egypt, and once Solomon died and Rehoboam was king, he came back and said, hey, you should uh, ease up on the taxes, and Rehoboam basically doubled down and said, I'm going to give you more taxes. Uh, so the, the country revolted, and there was a split. So uh, Rehoboam took uh, two tribes of Israel, and they became the southern kingdom, which we call Judah, and uh, Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom, and, and that became what we call Israel. So from this point on, there's now two kingdoms of Israel. There's the northern tribe that's, that's we, the, if you read the prophets and they, they're a prophet to Israel, they're to the northern kingdom. And if they're a prophet to Judah, they're to the southern kingdom. We have these two kingdoms. Got it? Northern kings. This sums it up. Bad, 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 bad. Just get that taste out of my mouth. It's horrendous. I never want to see it or think about it ever again. It's terrible. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom. Some scholars would be like, well, this one was okay because he didn't kill people. And they're like, okay, but that's not a great standard. Um, all of them were bad. None of them followed God. Their orthodoxy was terrible. They didn't know who God was. They worshiped other gods. They had idols. And the orthopraxy was even worse. They murdered people. They persecuted prophets. They did whatever they wanted. And so, after some time, the nation of Assyria rose up and conquered them assimilated them into the Assyrian nation and essentially um, breeded them out so they are no longer, they're gone from history. Assimilated into the Assyrian kingdom. The southern kingdom, mostly bad. There's a couple ones that were okay. There's a couple kings that were like, that tried. Their orthodoxy was, was fine. Their orthopraxy was okay, but like the best king in the, in the southern kingdom, the, the most notable thing about him was that a prophet came and said, hey, uh, Israel's going to be destroyed, but it won't be in your lifetime. And he's like, oh, good, it won't be in my lifetime. Like that was, that was his good news. He heard that as good news. So the southern kingdom, pretty bad, as, uh, with a few good ones. So um, Babylon comes takes over Assyria, Babylon's this huge nation, and eventually takes over the southern kingdom and uh, assimilates them as well. But Babylon has a different system. Instead of assimilating them and stripping them of their cultural identity, Babylon allows them to continue to worship their god. And it's like, great, another god for the collection. Uh, and uh, allows them a certain amount of freedom so that way they would be more obedient. Uh, so uh, Babylon, that's Babylon, and that uh, eventually Persia comes, takes over Babylon, and then Persia allows pe the uh, people that have been captured to go back into their native lands, and that leads us right up to Ezra. So we're going to watch the Bible Project video that's going to summarize the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah much better than I can. So uh, here's the book of Ezra. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. 
And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised to Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorce their wives, 
the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking, thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God.
And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra Nehemiah. It's pretty awesome. Okay, so Ezra Nehemiah, good theology, yeah, pretty good. Good praxis, good orthopraxy, yeah, pretty good. I want to dive into the most troubling story out of this whole book, in, in my opinion. Um, and in fact, I think it's one of the most troubling stories of the entire Old Testament. Uh, and I've been, I've been wrestling with this story all week, for, trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong, and it's still unclear to me. Um, so in Ezra chapter 9, the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons, so the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. This is what someone is telling Ezra. When I, Ezra, heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice." So essentially, the people, these are are second generation um, exiles. They were born into into captivity, born into exile, and they come into the land having never read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, probably. And so they rebuild the temple, they discover the Pentateuch, the the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, I said the Mount of Order, Um, but you get the idea. they're reading the first five books and they're going, oh my gosh, we have a, ba- a major problem. In Deuteronomy, it talks about this. We, we, it says, uh, Moses wrote that when you go into the land, be careful. Don't marry foreign people because if you do, their gods will get in and they'll turn you, you away from me. And so they're, they're going, Ezra, we have a problem. This happened. But it happened while we were in captivity, so not really, but it, how do we reconcile this? Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, a descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God, for we've married these pagan women of the land, but in spite of this, there's hope for Israel. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and send them away with our children, with their children. We'll follow the advice given by you and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. Get up, for it is your duty to tell us how to proceed in setting things straight. We're behind you, so be strong and take action. So this has broken Ezra to the point where he's like, I just want to get away. I don't know what to do. So he's just sitting in the temple, weeping, fasting, praying. I don't know what to do. And the people are coming to him saying, Ezra, you got to make a decision. Here's what we think you should do. What do you think? This, so we'll, uh, the Deuteronomy says not to have foreign women, so we'll just send the foreign women away. But you, you, gotta, you gotta come out and tell us what to do. So in chapter 10, within three days, so eventually Ezra calls all the people to gather. Within three days, all the people of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. This took place on December 19th, and all the people were sitting in the square before the temple of God. They were trembling, both because of the seriousness of the matter and because it was raining. Then Ezra the priest stood and said to them, you've committed a terrible sin. By marrying pagan women, you've increased Israel's guilt. So now, confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women. 
Then the whole assembly raised their voices and answered, yes, you're right. We must do as you say. And so here's where I'm struggling with on this. They finally interact with God's word and they realign their lives to God's word. They're going, my orthodoxy was bad. I didn't know it was bad, but, but now I'm correcting it. Because of that, there's implications for how I need to live. So I need to do something about this pagan uh, wife situation. And so orthopraxy, is that correct? Because the Bible Project video does correctly point out that it, there's nowhere in the text where Ezra's like, and then the Lord came and said, here's what you ought to do. If anything, Ezra is being influenced by the other leaders that are around him. They're like, here's what we think you should do, and, he, and that's what they end up going with. So uh, I don't know. Because it is true that, if, that God did say, if you marry foreign women, you're gonna, other gods are going to get in, and you're going to turn away from me. But I keep going back to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a foreign woman who comes into Israel and becomes like this, this prototype for us, the Gentiles. So clearly foreigners are not the problem by themselves. It's this other thing. It's this bringing of, of foreign gods. So I don't know what to do. I, I think in the end, I'm leaning towards this is not correct action. I think this was the wrong action. This thing was the wrong conclusion. They, they had right thinking, but wrong action. And I could be wrong on that. If you, if you are read that passage and you're like, no, that seems like God, I, I think that's a fair conclusion to, to come to because the text isn't really that clear. I, I, so when I was in Bible college, I um, took a Jan term class, which means you take a three-unit like, semester-long class and you stuff it into a week. And the, this class was History of Ancient Israel. So I, um, part of the class was reading textbooks and writing papers and doing all this normal stuff that uh, you do in school. But uh, a big part of this class was actually reading the History of Ancient Israel. So we read, starting in the book of Joshua, through Ezra Nehemiah. So Joshua, Ruth, um, Sam, uh, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra Nehemiah. And because it was a jantrum, we had to do all of that reading in one week. So we, uh, as a group, we just decided... Uh, it's a lot of reading, so we're just going to read it as a, as a group. We're going to sit and we're going to read together, and we're just going to take turns reading, um, and that will, we'll get through the text. And the first couple days, the first day was awesome. Reading Joshua is faith-building. Reading Ruth is amazing. Reading the first half of Judges is great. And then you see Israel start to spiral down and down and down and down. By day three... We've been stuck in Sam, the second half of Samuel where the kingdom of Israel starts to go down and you get into Kings and it's just depressing, man. Like just sit down and read, it's gonna take you a few hours, but read through the entirety of First and Second Kings. You're gonna be like, I just need something happy. Give me a Netflix and sugar or something like as sun. Like I just, it's depressing. It's hard to read. It's hard to sit through and you just watch Israel constantly get it wrong. And the worst part is you watch God sitting there and through this, throughout this narrative going, I wish you would turn to me. I wish you would turn to me. I wish you would turn to me. And they just don't over and over and over and over. And so on Thursday, we're all very tired and I'm reading uh, pretty much everyone else is, is Tired of reading, and of course, if you know me, you know I never get tired of talking, Jehanna will confirm. Um, and so I, I was reading the, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much by myself with the group listening. 
And we got to, I'm not sure if it was this section or if it was later on in Nehemiah when, when they're actually doing worship. And I, uh, I'm reading about these people and I, I hear a, a weird sound coming from the room. So I look up and my friend Stacy is crying. And I'm like, Stacy, what, what's wrong? Did something happen or what's, what's going on? And she just like took a deep breath and said, they're trying. For the first time, they're trying. And we've been sitting here watching Israel spiral out of control more and more and more and more and more and more. And there's God just going, I just wish they would come to me. I just wish they would have a heart for me. I just wish they would turn away from these other things that are distracting them and just be in love with me and me alone. Now they're trying. And it just... In that moment, it, it, the whole thing made sense. Their orthodoxy was, was good. Their praxis, maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't. But they were people after God's heart. They are trying to get it right. And like I said, this is the last book in the Old Testament chronologically before we get to the New Testament. So we can actually trace what this line of thinking, what this people became. And it's really interesting to me because uh, they are so committed to getting it right that they're willing to do whatever it takes even if we look back and say it's wrong. And this is the kind of people that Israel became. These are people who are sincere in their belief system, extremely passionate about God, great tithers, tithing things that God didn't even ask them to tithe. They were people who upheld a strong moral code. They believed in the authority of scripture they believed in miracles, they were missional, they prayed a lot, and they were messianic. They were looking for this future king. That's great orthodoxy, and that's great orthopraxy, too. They're taking what they believe about God, and they're putting it into practice in their lives, and that's right. These people are the Pharisees. See, we villainize the Pharisees because of how they oppose Jesus, and we're right to. They missed it. But the Pharisees are the only people in the New Testament that are trying before Jesus comes. They're the only people that are uh, aligning their lives with the word. They're just devoted to the word. We're gonna be people who understand what God is asking of us. We're gonna get our orthodoxy right. And we're gonna put it into practice. We're committed to getting it right. We are not gonna be like those kings we're not going to be like those judges. We're not going to be like those people. And what happens when you have your orthodoxy right and your orthopraxy right and Jesus comes into your life? So this is from the Gospel of John, which is my favorite gospel. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem from one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five color covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Uh, so, by the way, they believe there's this like superstitious thing um, of, of there's waters that would, would spin, and I think it was like a, for a festival, the priest would spin the waters, and they believed that the first person to touch the water would be healed. So they're all just sort of gathered around the water trying to wait for it to, and then be the first one to touch it so they get healed. Whether or not they actually got healed, the text doesn't seem to care about that. And that's not the point of the story. So we don't know. Um, but so this is one of the men was lying there, had been sick for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him and knew he'd been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? And he says, I can't, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. Got a problem, I can't walk. It makes it hard to win a race. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees in particular, began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. So imagine you're this guy, right? You've been 38 years, you've been on a mat, can't walk. What kind of life are you living? Other people are taking care of you. If they stop helping you, you're done. Like you're just not encountering a great existence. And your only hope is this weird superstition that may, may not even be real, but you're not, you're the wrong kind of broken to be able to make that a reality for you. And then this Jesus guy comes and touches him and changes his life forever. He can work it now if he wants to. He can eat now if he wants to. He can give someone a hug if he wants to. He can have regular human relationship now. His whole life has been utterly transformed. And the Pharisees are mad because it happened on the Sabbath. So according to the orthodoxy, according to the rules, this is not good. And in fact, our orthopraxy, the way we, we carry out those rules that we understand, this is still not good because it was done on the Sabbath. We're trying to obey God's law here. Come on, get on board, Jesus. And so it's possible for your, your orthodoxy to perfectly line up, your orthopraxy to fully line up, and completely miss Jesus. Demon, come on, come up. Demon here is orthodoxy. <laughs> In reality, I'm not. <laughs> In reality, you're not. Um, but you're the perfect person for this. So this is orthodoxy, and this is exactly what happens if you have orthodoxy just by itself. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> that went way much better than I thought it was. I asked him to do this, and I was like, it's very clear. Make sure I don't die. <laughs> so that was good. Thanks. So this is what orthodoxy does just by itself. It knocks people over. It destroys people. If we take our right thinking and bring it out into the world, we're just going to destroy everyone. It's not life-giving. It's not hopeful. It's not good. We miss it. And if I'm just doing orthopraxy, if I'm just doing right thinking, I'm just doing good work, then I, and I remove myself from the correct thinking. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be concerned about, about that because that knocks people over, so I'm just going to be a good person. We're, we're still missing it. And then, we, and then that leads us over to like, oh, well, God is more happy with me because I do right things, right? It becomes this works theology. So we have this, this line of, uh, I can't, it can't just be about having good thoughts, and it also can't just be about uh, doing good actions because we can completely miss Jesus. So here's the solution. And it's, it's in Romans, it's, it's Paul. Uh, and as you, if you've watched 
my sermons, if you've been keeping up, you know, I kind of slip Romans into everything because it's just the best book. It's the best New Testament book. Uh, and I actually do mean that sincerely. Um, if there's only one book of the Bible that you would have to read for the rest of your life, make it Romans. It's awesome. And the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is fixing their orthodoxy, helping their, your thoughts have been wrong. And so you're aiming for the wrong target. And he's about to go into orthopraxy. Here's how you live this new thinking out. But before he does, he says this very interesting thing in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's about to give practice, but first he's like, it's not enough to believe the right things and then do some stuff. There's this missing step, and if you miss this, you're going to miss everything. Jesus is going to be right in front of you, and you're going to miss him. It's transformation. It's uh, actually being and becoming more like Jesus. It's actually being a, a man or a woman after God's own heart. It turns out that's been the key all along. It's the key to David. It's the key to Ezra and Nehemiah when they were in their healthy sections. And it's the key for us. And out of that, out of transformation, out of a real relationship with God, not just knowing things, but actually knowing him and being with him, uh, then we can talk about what to do. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, here's what God's will is. This is immediately after what we, the Romans verse we just read. By the grace given me, I say, everyone among you, not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God's assigned. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Let love be genuine. Hate what's evil. Hold fast what is good. By the way, hate what is evil, not hate who is evil. Important distinction. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, which by the way is us, extend hospitality to strangers, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. Another way of saying that would be love your enemies. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we have some praxis, some correct doing. But do you see that it's couched in this other thing? And there's a word for it, and it's called orthopathy. And it holds up and supports the other two. So, uh, there's, so if Stephen could come up again real quick. Orthodoxy by itself is just going to knock people over. That's not good. It's no good. <laughs> no bien. <laughs> uh, sorry, that, Johanna hates when I do that, and it delights me. I don't know why. Uh, 
She's smiling because she hates it. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to talk about it on the way home, for sure. Um, so this is, this is orthodoxy, and by itself, it's not good. By itself, it's not helpful. By itself, it's just going to knock people over. Uh, so this is what needs to happen. Orthopathy. I have to know God. I have to encounter him. And when, when that happens, when I'm transformed, the orthodoxy makes sense. It has a place. And together, this can do orthopraxy, right action. So I'm not just doing whatever I want separate from the orthodox, separate from what God is saying, separate from what is correct theology, good doctrine. But I'm also not just hanging out with the good doctrine and doing nothing. It's all together. Does that make sense? Thanks, man. Love you, man. So good doctrine by itself is really important. Can I emphasize that again? If you don't know what you believe and why, you need to figure it out. It's so important that you study the word. It's so important that you study the word. It's so important. It's so important that you understand why you believe what you believe. You can go to Foursquare's website, you can go to our website and just get a systematic theology. Maybe some people in here should do that and understand what you believe and why. We need orthodoxy or else we're gonna aim for the wrong target. But, and we need to be doing stuff. <laughs> we can't just be like, check on the dotted line that says, I agree with evangelism. It just can't happen. We can't just go, yeah, I'm the, we're light to the world, agreed, done. We have to actually do something, but none of that's gonna matter unless we are transformed unless we actually be like Jesus, unless we um, transform our lives to be like him. And here's how Jesus describes himself in regards to missions. He says, I've given, this is God, uh, Jesus praying. I've given them, meaning the disciples and us, ultimately, your word. And the world hates them because they don't belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So when we think of evangelism, we think of missions. Most churches think of it as like a department in the church. Like, like five people go do missions and everyone else either prays or gives them money. And that's missions. And we think we're becoming more and more like Jesus by watching them do missions. But this is what Jesus did. He was the very first sent one. He's the very first missionary. He's the one that goes uh, from God to us. And so as we become more like him, we also become sent ones. And it's not a department of the church. In fact, I would argue that uh, this is what the church is built on. This uh, author that uh, I recently read says it this way, the uh, church doesn't have missions, missions has a church. You are the missionary. You're the evangelist. You're the sent one. That's how it's gonna, it has to work. And when that happens, uh, our orthodoxy, our correct thinking is, is in place, our orthopraxy, our correct doing is in place, and our orthopathy is in place. Now, here's one more thing about that. I could write a book about my friend Justin. 
Some of you have met him. And I can tell you all the things he likes. I can tell you his habits. I can tell you how he talks. I can tell you what he looks like. I can tell you uh, secret things that no one else knows about him. I can tell you what he wants to do when he grows up. I can tell you about his history. And I can hand you the, uh, the book of Justin, and you could read it, and you could think you know everything there is to know about Justin. You know all the facts about him. But you don't. You don't know Justin. You've never met him. You just know things about him. And in fact, you could take that book and say, well, because I know things about Justin, I'm going to act in certain ways. I, I know that Justin doesn't drink coffee because I read that in the book. So I'm going to buy him a gift card for tea because he likes tea. I know that Justin uh, likes to play video games. So I'm going to buy him a game. So I'm going to do some praxis based on the, this belief that I have about him. Some of you already see where I'm going with this. But you don't actually know Justin. You've never actually met Justin. You don't know Justin until you're actually face-to-face with him. So you're actually like talking with him, spending time with him. And all of those facts and all of those behaviors that you do are in the context of knowing him. There's this joke, uh, I, don't, I think it's a comedian that says it, where he says, uh, when two people are going on a romantic walk, but only one of them knows about it, that's called stalking. And I wonder this morning if there's some of us who have been watching God on the beach. We've learned all the facts about him. We have all of our orthodoxy. We got it. We know everything he believes. We know all his history. We know his will. We know everything about him. And we're actually doing stuff for him. But he's walking along the beach. And we knew he was going to walk on the beach because we know him. But we're not walking with him. And so this morning, we have an invitation to walk alongside God, to be with him, to encounter him, and to be transformed by him. So I want to do an exercise. I want to read uh, a section of uh, the Gospel of John. It's a story about Jesus. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to ask Hannah to read it a second time. And what I'd like to invite you to do, um, the first time we read it, just, just read it, get all the facts and all the things like that. But uh, I want you to turn off that intellectual Bible study inductive thing that we do where it's like, what's the lesson to be learned here? What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about how we ought to treat our neighbors? What is this? Like, turn that off for a moment. It'll still be there. It's still important. You can pick it up when we're done. But I, I want to invite you to disengage your intellect and engage your imagination. And as we read this, this story that I'm, that I'm going to pop up on the screen, I just want you to put yourself in the story. And uh, just, like, be around. Smell the smells that there would be. Visualize the, the people. See Jesus' face. When, uh, the, when he's riding in dirt, picture the dirt. Smell the dirt. See the dust clouds pop up. And don't make this about a lesson. Don't be distracted by the other characters. Don't be distracted by the Pharisees. Just watch Jesus. And let's just hang out with him in this story for a moment. Can we do that? So I'm going to read it. As he was speaking, Jesus, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. 
They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote into the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So go ahead. You just had like that sermon that you heard once about this passage pop up. You remember like the Greek word that was used here. That's fine. All those pop up. You're like, oh, here's a lesson to be learned about how to treat people. Great. Now we're going to read it again. We're going to put all that to the side and we're just going to be with Jesus. Johanna, can you come up? Oh, right here, great. Um, Johanna's gonna read it, and again, we don't, don't get distracted by the woman. Don't get distracted by the Pharisees. Let's just watch Jesus. And I'm gonna have, actually, Vitaly, could you come up and, and just play? We're gonna just sit in this passage, and just, we're gonna take a couple minutes and just be with Jesus in this story. And then I'm gonna come back up, and we're gonna close. Go ahead and read it, Johanna. Oh, me. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more.
Jesus, so often we interact with you by having you come into our story. And we just thank you that you're the sent one. You came for that reason to be a part of our story. And this morning we enter into your story. We see ourselves with you. And we want to be people who are men and women after your heart. God, for some of us, we've not read the book about you. We don't know about you. We don't have correct thinking. Or are we having complete thinking? And so this morning we begin the process of seeking orthodoxy. For others of us who've been sitting here, checking the box, knowing all the things that are true statements, but we've been passive about putting those into practice. And this morning we commit to you to let our correct thinking influence our actions. All of that, God, we filter through knowing you, being with you, spending time in your presence, knowing your voice, being utterly in love with you. God, when that happens, even when we, our thinking goes off or even when our behavior goes off, you can bring us back. trust you. As the song that we sang earlier today says, we build our lives on the firm foundation of knowing you. Usually we do communion at this point but, uh, for safety and sanitary reasons. We're going to hold off this week, but I want to just encourage you as you do lunch later today or dinner, the next time you gather with a group of people, that was how Jesus did Communion. It was a meal. And he picked up his bread and said, this is my body. And then he picked up the glass that was in front of him and said, this is my blood. So I just want to encourage you, uh, as you as you leave this place, to do communion from that context. You know, and I actually want to invite you as well. If you're here this morning and, and you, you are like orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy, I have none of that and this is the first exposure to Jesus you've ever had, and you're like, that sounds great. I'd love to be known by God. I'd love to be part of his story. Can I just invite you, ah, we don't usually do it like this, but can I just actually invite you to raise your hand if, that, if you wanna, wanna know Jesus? If you don't, it's fine. And if you're like, I'm too embarrassed to do that, we're gonna have people in the back for prayer, just go talk to one of them and say, I wanted to raise my hand, but I was too scared. It's okay. as the worship team comes back up. Lord, we just thank you that you have us. We're yours. We trust you with everything. Lord, as you are a sent one, you send us out. So we uh, will be evangelists to the people in our lives. We as a community will be a light to Bellevue. 
and we'll do it through the context of knowing you. Thanks, ushers, for coming forward.